I received several robo phone calls this week, which I really don't like. You know what a robo call is? They have an auto dialer. Used to be, uh, you pick up the phone and you still get some this way, and there's nobody there. And then after you say hello, then maybe it clicks on or whatever. They're much more advanced now. And I picked up the phone this week, and as soon as I picked it up, it's, Hello, Pastor, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it took me a minute to realize this is not a real person. This is just some pleasant-sounding woman on a recording. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is Jesus telling us how to know whether we are real or just a robo-Christian, somebody imitating the real thing. And as we come to verse uh, 17 uh, through 20 again this week, we're going to understand in terms of, 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 of how we're living, how we're to live today, what is our relationship to the Old Testament law? A lot of misunderstanding about that among Christians today, and people want to say, well, if you're a real Christian, you have to live this way. If you're a real Christian, you have to live that way. Jesus defines it quite clearly about what it means for a Christian, for a real genuine Christian to live in relationship to the law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to break them shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." In defining the relationship between himself and the law or or between Christianity and the law, Jesus makes it clear that faith and life in him is deeply connected to God's way of faith and life that was already in existence. Every once in a while you'll hear somebody say, well, Christianity is not that old of a religion, as though because you know, Buddhism or something like that predates Christianity, that it's more valid. Christianity is the original religion, and it started with Adam. (laughs) It just wasn't called Christianity at that time. What we believe and what we practice is based on God's way of working with mankind all the way to the beginning. When Jesus speaks here of the law and the prophets, or the law or the commandments, as he does in these very, he uses various terms at various times, it's all talking about the same thing. And so today I'm going to be referring to the law as in the Old Testament law, but I'm using that word the way Jesus did to essentially refer to the whole Old Testament system of faith and life. And we're going to review by going to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to review what we learned last week. And what we learned last week was this. Genuine righteousness was the goal of the law. Follow in Galatians chapter 3 as we, as we consider the way God revealed this truth through the Apostle Paul. We didn't look at this passage last week. But the Apostle Paul is addressing the same issue. He's saying, now listen, Christians, there's some things you need to understand about the Old Testament law. 
And, and uh, in particular, we want to understand that the goal was righteousness. Follow along from Genesis or Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, or who has deceived you, or fooled you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the, the indwelling Spirit of God, by doing the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Or does he do it by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify or make righteous the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The impact of the law and its place in the truth of salvation is given to us in this book of Galatians, in particular in chapter 3, and I just want to highlight several points. And the first one is this, salvation before Christ was still by faith. Now, did the Old Testament saints look forward to and envision the exact demonstration of Christ as we see him in the Gospels? No. But they had hints and they had foreshadowings and, and they knew something was coming, but their faith was in God and their faith was demonstrated or, uh, or shown to be real by the sacrifices, by the keeping of the law. But salvation was always by faith. And that's the point that he's making here in these verses. He says, Abraham, and of course, Abraham predates the law itself. He says, Abraham lived by faith. And God told Abraham, verse 8, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Did Abraham understand what that meant? You know, it meant that out of him was going to come Jesus the Messiah. And so the gospel, the, the, the looking forward to the salvation that we have today was there all the way back to Abraham. Salvation before Christ was always by faith. The Apostle Paul says to these Christians, did you do a bunch of things, that is, do a bunch of works and then get saved? He said, no. And he said, neither did Abraham. Let's follow on, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified or made righteous by the law in the sight of God is evident. It's plain to see. Because the Old Testament itself said, The just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. What do we understand from this? The law brought condemnation. There is a method of witnessing today called the way of the master, and I think they really get the law right. They say, you know what the purpose of the Ten Commandments is? 
that one of the great purposes is to show mankind they're sinful. And so when they teach this method of witnessing, they go out and they ask people a bunch of questions, and the summary statement goes like this, so you're a lying adulterer. And people go, whoa. But the point is to get them lost so they'll want to be saved. That's what the law did, and that was the point. The law brought condemnation. It didn't save people. Let's follow on, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit that is through faith. We learn that Christ paid the penalty to remove our condemnation. We go on in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one knows it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and to his seed or his descendants were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of law, it's no longer a promise. Next thing we understand here was that the blessing promised to Abraham was God's goal. In other words, when God talked to Abraham, he already had in mind the person of Christ and the salvation that would come from Christ. So that was the blessing promised to Abraham. And then verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? If the whole thing's wrapped up in Christ, why did God even have the law? It was added because of transgressions to show people they're sinful until the seed, until Jesus should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, if there had been a law given which could have given life, then righteousness truly would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, before the faith of Christ that we plainly know now, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was God's way to point people to Christ. He wanted them to see that they're sinful. He wanted them to see the repetition of giving sacrifices and to grow weary of it. He wanted them to experience the fact that even though they believed in God and they obeyed by offering sacrifice and living in certain ways, that their conscience wasn't clear. And they needed an internal change. And all of that was to lead his people Israel to the point that when Christ came and when he preached this message and when he died on the cross, that they would have went, oh, this is the final sacrifice that I've been waiting for to take away my sins completely. The law was God's way to, be, to point people to Christ. Now look at verse 25. For after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
What does that say about the practicing of the law in specific? It says we're not under that. We are not regulated by that. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The law is not to be practiced. The law is not to be practiced by Christians. The goal of the law was genuine righteousness. The goal of the law. But it was not the means to achieving it. It was only to point people in the direction of Christ. And the Apostle Paul summarized that really well in Romans 8. For what the law was powerless to do, it could not create righteousness. It was weakened by the sinful nature. What the law could not do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. By doing the law? No. We do not live according to the sinful nature, but we live according to the spirit. God never intended for the law to be kept indefinitely. He tended it to point to Christ. God's truth couldn't be more clear about salvation being only in Christ and the law not being something we should practice. Now look again with me at Matthew chapter 5, please, in verse 19. Because in Matthew 5, 19, Christ seems to, to raise a contradiction that's hard for us to grasp. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to break them shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, whoever does the commandments, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So how can we say, how can the apostle Paul say Christ is the end of the law, you're not to be practicing it, and yet Christ says We're supposed to do them and teach them. I believe that's because of this. Genuine righteousness was understood through the law. Now think with me about this. Did God want Israel in the Old Testament time to keep the 620-something commandments? Did he want them to follow those? Yes. Yes, he intended for them to follow them. But was that, here's the question, Was that his greatest desire? Was his greatest desire to look down from heaven and to see them walking in all of those steps? I think the question is answered for us by a man from the Old Testament who was a believer and a prophet and a king, and he's called a man after God's own heart. So I think that man knows the answer to this question. And the question is here and answered here. You do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now, these words come out of Psalm 51, in which David is confessing his sin to God. The, 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 the headline on the psalm says, these are, this is what David said after Nathan went in and confronted him over his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. 
And so he had this great sin on his heart. Did David go to the temple, offer a big sacrifice, clap his hands and say, I'm done. I did what the law said. No, just the opposite. He looks up to heaven and he says, I know you don't, you don't want me to go through the motions. You don't want me to just offer a sacrifice. David could have, offer, could have offered a sacrifice to end all sacrifices in the sense of how big it would have been. David said, what you want is a heart for you. Now what this teaches us is that the, the Old Testament law was never about doing all of those specific things alone. It was about believing in God and then obeying him out of faith. David clearly understood that God had some righteous de desires that came through the law, but we might even say they, they overshadow the law. And they're spelled out fairly specifically, and yet even so, Israel seemed to have missed them and gravitated toward little teeny applications of the law. Let's look at some of those broad desires God had. First one is this, God wants to be the singular focus of your worship. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Can't be much more clear than that. And of course, you know those words because Jesus repeated them. Uh, and, and they're repeated more than once in the Bible. The overarching theme of putting God above all else runs throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament in places like this. Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross, that is, love me more than himself, and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, this overarching desire for righteousness that God has started in the Old Testament. He said, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was taught in the law, and it was taught by the activities of the law. But it was never empowered by the law. That's what we find in Christ. Christ essentially says the same things in terms of what, do, what does God desire? He desires all your heart. But now he transforms us so that it's actually possible for us to give him full dedication or to grow in our dedication day by day. The second broad righteous desire that God had was this. God wants to bless your life. Now I know I'm starting to sound a little bit like Joel Osteen and a few other guys there. But this is a scriptural principle. God doesn't intend to make your life miserable. He may allow you some great difficulty in the path to righteousness. But God wants to bless your life. The first and foremost blessing he wants to bring for you is the confidence that you're going to heaven someday. I mean, going to heaven is the blessing. Not going to hell is the blessing. And so God wants to bless us that way, but he also wants to care for us beyond that. And in the Old Testament, he said it very clearly in places like Deuteronomy 6. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. 
When Israel followed God, they had blessing. When they walked away from him, God had to come along and discipline them to get them to come back. Boy, does that sound familiar? That sounds a lot like Hebrews chapter 12. But the basic basic, uh, characteristic of God is also given to us by Jesus in Matthew 7. If you, you human beings, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God desires to bless our life. Now, God, uh, you know, I'm not going to preach on the health and wealth gospel right now, but I, I know God doesn't intend to give you everything you want. But God does intend to bring blessing to your life. And that was a theme in the Old Testament. It's a theme in the New Testament. The third broad desire that God has is this. God wants you to realize that sin requires a blood payment. Although God wants to bless your life, there is a roadblock to that blessing, and that roadblock is called sin. Now, we can look in a lot of places in the Old Testament and look at the payment, the, uh, the, the penalty, the, the, the expression of faith about sin, but there was sacrifices were to be made. Leviticus 4 says, Leviticus 4 just lays out this sacrificial process. The elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. And he shall, thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. When people sinned, when the nation sinned, they brought an offering. They had all of this process. And the net effect was there was atonement. There was a covering of sin. There was a putting of sin on hold until Christ died. This was God's way of teaching this great truth. Sin requires a blood payment. If we move forward to Hebrews chapter 13, we read it this way. Therefore Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Throughout the New Testament, we read about the blood of Christ. And of course, there's a heavy inference that that, that in speaking of blood, he's speaking of death. Those two things are linked together. But there's a great truth there that's taught in the Old Testament. Sin requires a blood payment. And the next truth that we see, the broad desire of God is this. God wants you to know how righteous he is. Much of the Old Testament worship system was designed to teach the sin of the people, and the righteousness of God. Here's one example of that. Aaron's sons were the priests. They were the ones who could, could do the sacrifices, and you know, one of them would be the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies and so on. But here's the preparation for Aaron's sons. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and for beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with them. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them. In other words, you're you're specially recognizing them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. Thus 
They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle, the place of worship, or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. Now, when God put those special clothing on those, on those men, did they become perfectly righteous? No, they did not. Did those men become different than any other man in Israel? No, they did not. But God was saying, listen, I am righteous and uniquely so. And when you come near to the place that represents me and my presence, you should come in righteousness. I am, I am so righteous you can't imagine. And you are sinful. And so you have to do all of these things. So, and, and the people outside would have looked and said, wow, not just anybody can go in there. And that's what God wanted them to learn. Not just anybody can go in there. But it wasn't because the priestly line was special. It was because God was, was teaching them this thing. And of course now, now as we move forward into our time frame, we learn the same thing. We have boldness to come into the Holy of Holies, the place where only that special high priest could go. We have boldness to do it because of the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil is a reference to the veil of the, in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the other holy place. And nobody could go in except the high priest. You know, when Christ died on the cross, one of the things that was happened was the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That was God going... That was God saying, you can be righteous enough to come right in, not to the place that represents my presence. You can come into my presence. And in the Old Testament, through the law, God was teaching people, you have to be especially, you have to be righteous and specially prepared by virtue of the forgiveness of sins. All of the instructions regarding the priesthood, the fact that it was a limited number, they had special clothing, there was special preparation, all of that was God's way of saying, listen folks, you need salvation in Christ to take your sin away so you can come right up to me. The last broad principle, the last broad principle that we want to see from the Old Testament law, the things that came through the law is this. God wants you to love other people. Now that, when we think of the law, I'm not sure we all always think of that, but that was there. You shall not take revenge nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And of course, when we, we fast forward, we hear similar words from Jesus when he summarized the law into two commandments. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But there's also a passage like this from Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. You want to keep the law? Love one another. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, they are summed up 
in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we understand by looking at at all of this truth and then we hear the words of Jesus saying this, he's, he's saying we don't keep specific rules, but neither do we remove them. You see, it's, it's one thing to say we don't practice the law. It's another thing to say we're going to tear that one out of the Bible and tear that one out of the Bible and get rid of this and that. He's saying, look, we live out the law in their full intent when we live in Christ. All of these broad righteous desires were inherent in the law, but the law couldn't empower them. But now, now we can live them out in Christ. I think John MacArthur summed it up very well when he said this, In Christ, we are anything but lawless. Christ's law is totally different from the Jewish judicial and ceremonial law and different from the Old Testament moral law with its penalty and curses for disobedience, but it is not different in the slightest from the holy, righteous standards that the Old Testament law taught. So we clearly understand that God's desire for us is to be truly holy. He created the system of the law to make mankind realize they could not be righteous without God's intervention. Christ paid the penalty for our sin so that through faith in him, our sin can be removed and a righteous nature given to us. And now we can live out the intent of the law, which is true righteousness. Now let's go back to Matthew 5 and look at verse 20 and understand one more thing about our relationship from the law, and it's this. Genuine righteousness is not measured by the law. Rather, it is demonstrated by transformation of heart and life. Look at Matthew 5.20, please. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now there is a little difference that you should notice between verse 19 and verse 20, because in verse 19, what he is saying is this, Christian, as you talk about the law, don't you tell people we're getting rid of this and we're not following that. He's saying, as you teach the truth of God, you are reinforcing and strengthening what is in the Old Testament by virtue of Christ's new and greater standards, which we'll look at in just a moment. But now here he talks about the issue of salvation. He says, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't make it to heaven. So now he's talking about the essential nature of of what it means to believe in God. What was the righteousness of the Pharisees? The righteousness of the Pharisees was external conformity based in specific applications of the law. External conformity based in specific applications. Here's a great example of that that Jesus himself gave. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now you see, the commandment of God is a reference to the Old Testament law, and the word tradition is a reference to their application of the law. Let me give you a a modern day example. Um, 
Jesus clearly says, and we're going to come to it here a little bit later, that we should not have thoughts that are uh, immoral. Okay? That's a clear teaching of God. You can go fast forward into the New Testament, and that, that theme goes throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. Should not have immoral thoughts. Some people will look at that and come to a point in their life and say, I am going to get rid of my television because that's what I need to do so I don't have immoral thoughts. Praise the Lord. Jesus said, if your right hand offends, you cut it off. Okay. Now, so far they're doing really good, but when they walk down the road and say, if you have a television, you are sinful, they have just become a Pharisee. Because what happens is a person who is immature in the Lord listens to that teaching and goes, oh, what I have to do to be righteous is get rid of my TV. So they throw their TV out, and they never were even taught the principle is, which is, you should not have immoral thoughts. So they've gotten rid of their TV, but when they walk through their life, it's bad thought, bad thought, bad thought, bad thought. But they're saying to themselves, I am righteous because I have gotten rid of my TV. And that's what the Pharisees did with with the Old Testament. And here's an example of that. Why do you transgress the actual command of God because of your own interpretation, your own application of it? For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother. That's in that Ten Commandment list. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the command of God of no effect by your tradition. Here's what they did. They were greedy, like all human beings are without Christ. And so they said, I have money. I have a possession. And my mother and dad have a need, but I don't want to give it to them. And so they would go to the temple and say, I have dedicated all of my money to the Lord. It's dedicated. They didn't give it to the Lord. They dedicated it to the Lord, which means someday I'm going to give it to you, all that I have. So then they went back to mom and dad and said, sorry, mom, I'd love to help you out, but you know, I've dedicated everything to God. That's what they did. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, their words... They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Remember what David said? You're not looking for the sacrifices, God. You're looking for the heart change. These people turn that right upside down, and they said all the right things. But their heart was wrong, and the real actions they did were wrong. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, they took this, this idea... They said, well, we've thought through what it means, and so you can dedicate your stuff to God, and then you know, whoever wants it, you can't give it to them. And they taught that. They didn't go back and say, God says, honor your mother and father. They just said, here's this little application of the truth. The righteousness of the Pharisees was external conformity. On the outside, they looked good, but on the inside, they were sinful. 
the Pharisees made a way to get around the clear intent of God's law. If they were truly righteous, they would have done what God said. And so here's that passage again from Isaiah. Their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. What does it mean to exceed then the righteousness of the Pharisees? Does it mean I need more rules? Well, they had 100 rules, so if you're going to exceed their righteousness, you need 200 rules. No. Does that mean I need to keep the Old Testament law plus more? No. It means total transformation, not external conformity. The Pharisees only made themselves look good on the outside. There was nothing different on the inside. And so what Jesus is teaching, and and certainly what he's going to teach, and we're going to skim through it here in just a minute, is internal transformation that results in external change. Romans chapter 12 is the great summary of, of change for us as Christians. Do not be conformed. Do not make the outside of your life look like the world, but be transformed from the inside out. Be changed. How? By the renewing or the making spiritual of your mind with the result being that you will prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I had a friend once, a pastor, who said, it's easier to make Christians if you use legalism. In other words, you come to church and we tell you how to dress and we tell you what to do with your TV and we tell you how many times a week you have to be here and on and on and on. And and it's easy for people to conform to those rules. Now, some people don't like them. Some of you sitting right here, tell me what to do. Well, that's good. It's actually good because you should only be taking your rules from God. But there are places that do that. You can only listen to this kind of music. You know, you, you got to show up here in a, in a suit and tie, and you got to do this and that and the other, and all these things. And there are people who seem to want that, but there's a tremendous deficit. And the deficit is you miss the matters of the heart. There is external conformity, but there's not inward transformation. God doesn't want you to do a few external behaviors that make you look righteous. God wants you to change completely from the inside out. A little story has been passed around on the internet. You may have read it. Um, I'm sure it's made up. A man was being tailgated by a stressed out woman on a busy street. Suddenly the light turned yellow just in front of him, so he did the right thing and he stopped. The tailgating woman exploded in anger and honked the horn and screamed and told him to choose a finger, those kinds of things, because she was slowed down. As she was in mid-rant, she heard a tap on the window, and she turned, there was a police officer. He said, get out of the car, ma'am, and he handcuffed her and impounded her car and took her to the police station. And after a while, he came back and said, I'm very sorry for the mistake, he said, I, I pulled up behind your car and, and I saw all these bumper stickers on there. And so I assumed your car had been stolen. 
<laughs> it is not hard to put a Jesus bumper sticker on your car. It's not hard to put on an external conformity that makes you look like something. That's what the Pharisees did. But if you're going to exceed their righteousness, there has to be transformation. Jesus goes on in the next set of verses, that, and I'm just going to scan through them now because we're going to go back and, and, and really spend some time in them. But he, he goes on to say, he, he, he goes on to say, look, in, in verses 21 through 48, we could paraphrase, there's a form which is repeated. Look with me at verse 21. You have heard it said, verse 22, but I say to you. This form is repeated six times, so we know there's a parallel thing going on. And really, he's giving a series of illustrations. It's not his intent so much to teach a bunch of stuff as to say, here's what I want you to get out of this message, guys. Here's what it means to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so I'm going to paraphrase it this way. The exact words of the law are this, but real righteousness looks like this. Verse 21, the law says murder is wrong. And I'm against it, by the way. But so is anger and hatred. You see, anger and hatred are in the heart, murders on the outside. Some Pharisee would say, I've never murdered anyone. Jesus says, that's, that's just the external. Let's get to the inside. Verse 27, the law says adultery is wrong. But so is sexual fantasy. Verse 31, the law says divorce can be legal, but it must be moral. Verse 33, the law says you must not say an oath unless you intend to keep it. They had a habit of, they would, they would say certain things and they were being deceptive while they were saying them and they would use the oath so people would believe that they meant to keep their word, but they never intended it. He says, you should just be honest, period. The law said you could take revenge when wronged, but now you must replace revenge with love. The law said you could treat enemies with hatred, but now you must treat all people with love. And if all of that isn't enough, Christians, true believers, are to be as righteous as God himself. Boy, he could have left that one out. Real transformation, not just external conformity. I had a temporary job once, working with another fellow, cleaning things up, and the very first thing he said to me about that job was, we have to make this work last, so don't be working too fast. In other words, do the minimum possible so that when people look at you, they think you're working, but in reality, you're going to drag your feet and get as much money out of this deal as you can. Christianity is not about fitting into a group of people or maintaining an appearance that looks religious. It's about letting the Holy Spirit so pervade your life that you become more like Christ in heart and in action day by day. Is Christ truly in you today? Is there transformation going on? 
Are you becoming more like God? Let's pray. Father, help us. It is easy to have an external set of rules. It's easy for us to fall into that sometimes and, and to think that's, that's what we need. It's more conformity, but we don't. We need more transformation. Make that happen, Father, in me and in us and in us as a church. As a church together, may we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. May we, may we truly pursue transformation. May we be transforming as a body of believers. May we help others on their path to becoming like Christ. Father, if there's somebody here today that's never never really come into real relationship with Christ. Maybe they've just been going through the motions because that's all they knew to do. Would you open their eyes and their mind and their heart today and help them understand that Christ died for their sins and they must believe in him so that you will come in and begin to change them. Be honored as we sing to you and as we fellowship and as we go home and, and as we come back tonight to do your business. I pray in Christ's name, amen.